brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the series known as Master the NEC, sponsored by Electrical Code Academy Incorporated, where we talk about the National Electrical Code. Again, this podcast is brought to you by ECA. Uh, and um, if you're not familiar with who that is, that is the corporation, the parent company uh, of the Master the NEC series. You can find out more about them at electricalcodeacademy.com. All right, so we're continuing on our series. Today's episode is on the changes that took place to the 2017 National Electrical Code, I guess more specifically the changes between the 14 to the 17. And we're talking about Chapter 4 today. So we previously did Chapter 3, kind of gave an overview of those changes. Again, none of these should uh, take the place of you actually getting a good code change document uh, or getting the code and actually looking at the changes yourself, okay? We're just kind of giving a brief overview of the changes, and we're not covering every single change. We're trying to cover... Uh, the majority of the more significant changes, but we're not covering every single change, okay? All right, so let's get started. Uh, We're going to talk about the Chapter 4, which is Equipment for General Use, Uh, and we're going to pretty much go from Article 404 to 480, okay? So we're going to talk about the changes in here involved in each one of these articles and uh, see if we can't shed a little light on some of these changes. All right, the first change we're going to talk about is one that I have done a podcast before on, so you might have listened to it when it came to dealing with the need for the grounded conductor at all switch locations or switch connections, uh, and that is 404.2C, dealing with the switch connections. Now, this is a revision. Again, this this actually uh, came all the way back when it's kind of started in the in the 2011 edition where it started creating this this list of uh, originally where you had to have a grounded conductor at all switch locations and then of course kind of morphed away from that and said look there's some allowances in here 
where you don't have to have uh, a grounded conductor at all switch locations. That's kind of where it, it you know, it's it's morphed to. Um, but we're dealing with 404.2C switch connections, and there was a change uh, for the 2017 edition. Now, in the switch control lighting out, it says the general word. Let me read you. Let's read the, the code requirement, and then I'll tell you, of course, where the language changed a little bit for clarification. Uh, and then we'll talk about the changes. Um, it says the grounded circuit conductors for the controlled lighting circuit shall be installed at the location where switch controlled lighting outlets that are supplied by a grounded general purpose branch circuit serving bathrooms, hallways, stairways, or rooms suitable for human habitation uh, or occupancy as defined in the applicable building codes, International Building Code, International Residential Co uh, Code, uh, the IBC, IRC, that, what have you. And they actually have a definition of what's considered a habitable, uh, habitable room. Okay, so that gives you some guidance there. Going to pull in another document that you have to be aware of. Uh, I should also remind people that usually the IBCs, the IRCs, are a higher level code than the NEC uh, for jurisdictions. Um, and they make reference to the NEC, at least in the IBC. IRC has its own electrical requirements that are pretty much derived from the NEC. But as far as adoption and the structure of how the codes are enforced, you usually have a local codes, you'll have amendments, you'll have statewide building codes, and then you'll have your I codes, which is IRC and IBC. And then, of course, you'll have your adopted NEC, which some of these other standards will make reference to. But that's kind of how the hierarchy works at Okay. It goes on to say where multiple switch locations control the same lighting loads, such as an entire floor area of a room or space, and is visible from that single or combined switch location, then the grounded circuit conductor shall only be required at one of those locations. Okay, this re previously in the 2014, uh, it was one of the locations, one of the items. And according to the, they kind of moved that up into the general body of the text. And they also did that when they talked about the habitable room aspect of it. Um, that was also down in one of the items. That's kind of been moved up in 2017 into the general body of the text. All right, this makes sense. If I have a big room and I have two switch locations, I have a granite conductor at one of the locations. I don't really need them in both locations. That's redundant. It's not necessary, okay? So that's what they've done there, okay? Um, and it says, a grounded conductor shall not be required to be installed at lighting switch locations under any of the following conditions. All right, now previously there was seven conditions that has been reduced down to five, because again, two of those conditions, which were dealing with, like we just said, where you have a large area where you have multiple switch locations, you really only need it at one. If, if that combined switch locations are covering the same area and are visible from that same area, that was one of the other items before, and now that's just in the general body. So we were able to get rid of two of them. So it went from seven down to five items in 2017. And of course, we look at each one of these. Uh, the first one basically is saying, okay, look, I don't need to have a grounded conductor at this lighting switch location where the conductors enter a box enclosing a switch through a raceway, provided the raceway is large enough that it is sized appropriate for all contained conductors, including the grounded conductor. Okay, so as long as it's in there, uh, it's a raceway, 
I can add conductors into it later, uh, then okay. You don't have to add it at that time, provided again that you can get to it later to add it in the raceway. And the raceway of sufficient size to be able to do so. Item two didn't change, and that was where a box enclosing a switch is accessible for the installation uh, for the installation of an additional or replacement cable without removing finished material. So it's open on one side, it's open at the top. You're able to get down into the wall to that switch location without having to remove any of the finished material. Then okay, if you can convince the inspector that's the case, then no, you don't have to have one at that location. Okay. This is very common in locations, for example, in basements where one side of the wall is unfinished and the other side is finished. Obviously, it's open to get to it. Then it doesn't have to be there. The next item, again, didn't change from the 2014 edition. It says, where snap switches with integral enclosures comply with 300.15e. Now, this is internal part of It's associated with the enclosure, and it's like an assembly. Uh, it goes together. This also just reminds you that I don't need to do it for, like, closet switches that are actually uh, where it actually is a, when you open and close the door, the switch is activated. You know, they're all integrated together. It's not necessary for it to have to go to those type of applications. And that makes, that makes sense for that one uh, in that application. All right, let's see there what the next one is. Okay, again, number four previously in the 2014 was about Switches not serving habitable rooms or bathrooms. That was, again, actually moved up, like we said, into the parent text. So that item four was deleted. Uh, was renumbered to another one. But uh, the five from previous one was where multiple switch locations of the same lighting loads over an entire space or room. And it was visible from one or the combined locations. Again, that was moved up into the parent text of 404.2c. So the new four and five were basically used to be six and seven. And four now is where lighting in the area is controlled by automatic means. So obviously if it's controlled by an automatic means, not necessary to have the um, grounded conductor at that location, maybe occupancy sensors that are up high or something like that. Okay, or controlled, maybe I shouldn't say occupancy, are controlled by a building system that integrates energy savings or energy monitoring or building maintenance monitoring or, or whatever that might control the lighting in a certain area automated, then it's not really a need to have the uh, switching and uh, the grounded conductor in those locations. Okay. All right, next is uh, where a switch controls a receptacle load. Now, they added some language here. It says, the grand conductor shall be, uh, shall be extended to any switch location as necessary and shall be connected to switching devices that requires line-to-neutral voltage to operate the electronics of the switch in the standby mode and shall meet the requirements of 404.22, which we'll talk about in a second. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, here, the requirement was to, to bring to... Um, I should say this happens to do with the, the parent text too, is it, it used to say, bring it to a location. Now it really makes it understood that if you take it to a location, you really have to connect it to that location. Uh, previous text, it kind of was that if it's there, it's, it shall be provided, uh, but it didn't tell you that it had to be installed. So you could provide that grounded conductor under the parent text of uh, 
in 404.2c, but it didn't say you had to actually use it or connect it. So the basic also change in the parent text now says, got rid of the, the word provided and said it shall be installed at the locations. So where it's required, it has to actually be utilized and installed. Okay, so I just want to throw that out at you. Okay. Uh, and again, where you switch controls, receptacle loads, it's important to remember that typically the dimmers and what have you aren't rated or evaluated to actually go to, to dim receptacles anyway. So uh, most of the time in that place, the switching, uh, you're not going to have the requirement or the need to have that application anyway. Because it really involves switching receptacle loads and no occupant sensor will ever likely be listed for use with receptacle outlets. So uh, I don't have to worry about something like occupancy sensors for that. So there's really no need for a grounded conductor at those switch, lo switch locations uh, that are controlling uh, receptacles. Typically is a, a switch leg dropping from a receptacle up to the switch and back down simply to control the switch. Uh, no need to have a grounded conductor at that location if that's what your intent was. Now, they did add an exception here. Now, the exception here is stating, look, the connection requirement shall become effective on January 1st, 2020. Okay. Now, that means that up until January 1st, 2020, you can utilize, after that, you have to have a device, for example, that uh, cannot utilize the equipment granite conductor to put to allow it for return current for these, for example, occupancy sensors to operate because even in a standby position, they still take current to flow in order to be able to be in the ready mode, okay? Now they do have listed occupancy sensors, for example, right now on the market that the instructions actually tell you to make the connection to the equipment grounding conductor from this device to complete the circuit. Now. The, the issue is after January 1st, 2020, you're not going to be able to use those devices that are like that, which are listed devices, for new installations. However, the code is going to allow you to use them for a replacement in a retrofit application where local codes haven't been adopted to new wiring in accordance with the 404.2C or where the grounded conductor cannot really be extended without removing any finished material. So it's really a re replacement application only. And, and remember that when this takes place, the manufacturers are going to allow that existing model that might be listed today, which is not going to be applicable after January 1st to new installations in 2020. If you're going to use it for replacements, they're going to have to give some guidance here. And the code goes a long way in saying, look, <clears throat> if you're going to use these listed products that do signify the fact that you can use the equipment granite conductor for this return current path, which is something that we really don't want to do, but we're going to let you do it, but we're going to limit the number of these occupancy sensors or these electronic lighting control switches to not exceed five on a branch circuit uh, or more than 25 on a load side of the system, for example, on a feeder. Uh, generally because the allowable current for these things to flow is 0.5 milliamps and many times the way they're installed it's in series because it becomes cumulative and there is a real concern that you can put a large amount of current onto an equipment grounding conductor kind of defeats what we're doing. We don't want to impose that current on the safety circuit or the safety ground. So we are going to give some guidance to the limitations to that. Okay. 
Uh, and you're going to see some more guidance in that when it calls to to limitations in 404.22 when we when we get to that one here shortly. Uh, but this is kind of giving you some some more guidance. It's allowing you to use existed models that might utilize the ground the grounded conductor uh, by utilizing that connection onto the equipment ground, which you won't be able to do for new installations after January 1st, 2020. Kind of gives us this sunset date. Uh, for this application gives the manufacturers time and there's already some out there that do provide or require the granite conductor connection and not utilize an equipment granite conductor for that function. Uh, but there are some old ones that's still out there that, uh, that, that don't. Okay. So keep that in mind. Informational note was added here to remind people this provision, the provision for future granite conductor is to complete a circuit path for electronic lighting control devices. The whole intent is in the future after January 1st, 2020 is to not use the equipment grounding conductor for any type of return path current on a device that utilizes that path to maintain its standby. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Mode or position. Okay. All right. So that's what we're, we've done here in that. So the synopsis of the 2017 change here, because this one is a difficult, has been removed from seven ish location conditions where the granite conductor is not required down to five. Uh, two of those, which were previously four, item four and five, were moved up into the parent text, which is just about habitable spaces and the two locations in a, a large space or area were all brought into the actual parent text. Uh, new exceptions, again, uh, were added to, you know, to deal with replacements and retrofit switches uh, and how to deal with that. So, and of course, this new exception is going to severely limit the number of electronic lighting control switches that are on these brand circuits or feeders under this allowance for replacement or retrofit conditions. Okay. So keep that in mind. This one has evolved from 2011. It caused a lot of stink when it first came out. People were like, oh, Lord, you're requiring me to have the granite conductor at every switch location. This prompted the change in 14 to, to exclude some areas. And then, of course, 2017 expands on that, kind of tidies it all up and allows for these existing listed products uh, to be still used for retrofits or replacement applications only. Okay. All right, let's move on to the next one. And also, just incidentally, we do have a show that I did on 404.2C that you can go back and listen to. It's a podcast that I did. Uh, Interesting enough, I figured I would talk about the fact that the building codes, here's their definition of, so in case you didn't want to, you wanted to know, here's their definition of what's called a habitable space. And it is defined in both the residential and the uh, commercial building codes, the, the ICC codes. It says, quote, a space in a building for living, sleeping, eating, and cooking. 
And of course, this definition should make it clear that a ground conductor is not required at switch locations, such as snap switches on door jams, switches, or, or closet lightings, since the closet is not considered a habitable room. Uh, and as we talked about previously, when you looked at item number, I guess it was number uh, uh, three, when dealing with swat snap switches that were integral, integral part of an enclosure. In other words, they were specifically designed for this enclosure and they worked together as an assembly. Then that was an example where it also would not be required. And that's governed also under 300.15e, which gives some guidance on that. So, so we kind of covered. I don't want. I didn't want to misconstrue that the that allowance in item three was similar to the other allowance when it deals with a non-habitable room or habitable room application. I'm just because a closet. I'm just saying there are equipment that has an integral switch that's built into it. You really don't need to do anything after that, and there really isn't. And if that switch is integral to the equipment and it doesn't need a grounded conductor uh, for its application, then it doesn't have to have one. And that's what item three was previously. So hopefully, I didn't confuse you with that. Again, trying to cover all the aspects of it uh, on a radio show without showing some graphics kind of sometimes leaves me running back and forth a little bit to explain some stuff. All right, the next thing we're dealing with is 404.22. This is branch circuit voltage limitations. Uh, this is new. This provision was added basically for electronic lighting control switches under 404.22. Uh, basically, it's prohibiting current on the equipment grounding conductor for the future with a future effective date. Kind of works hand in hand with the previous one that we looked at, which is given the allowance for these switches and when to have a granite conductor. Now we're going to show the voltage limitations and when that's going to kind of phase out for dealing with the electronic lighting control switches. All right, so this one again works hand in hand with 404.2C, the exception. And so at a glance here, this provision is really trying to put a damper on the use of the equipment granite conductor uh, for this return current. All right, so here's the language, and then I'll read you the exception. Uh, this is new. It says 404.22 electronic lighting control switches, primarily dealing with this issue where those electronic lighting control switches could impose 0.5 milliamps, which is usually the standard value for these devices under their listing. Um, <clears throat> it allowed it to put that amount of current onto the equipment granite conductor. Well, it can be cumulative, as we talked about previously. So, we're trying to limit the, the voltage limitations. We're limiting the switches. We're giving you some allowance for uh, existing and retrofit. But then you have this requirement here that says, hey, by the way, it says electronic lighting control switches. One, it says shall be listed. Okay, so they have to be listed. Electronic lighting control switches shall not introduce current on the equipment granite conductor during normal operation. Okay, so their normal operation. We're not talking about what happens on a, a, a ground fault or, you know, or something like that. We're talking normal applications. It's not to put current uh, onto this uh, equipment granite conductor. That's the last thing we want circulating through our equipment granite conductors, which are all connected and bonded to enclosures and blah, blah, blah. Okay. It says this, the requirement to not introduce current onto the equipment ground detector shall take effect on January 1st, 2020. Again, so it allows for that sunset date for all those existed listing applications where we saw previously, there's still going to be allowed for retrofit or where the finish of the building is not going to be removed uh, and things like that. But in new installations, 
you have to have the listed equipment again that is not going to impose current onto the equipment grounding conductor under normal operating conditions. Now, it does go on and do the exception, which has to kind of account for that allowance in 404.2C, and it says exception. It says electronic lighting control switches that introduce current onto the equipment grounding conductor shall be permitted for applications covered by 404.2C exception. And that is, again, for that retrofit remodel application, uh, not new construction. Okay. It goes on to say electronic lighting control switches that introduce current on the equipment grounding conductor shall be listed and marked for use in replacement or retrofit applications only. And the hope is also part of that listing that the manufacturers of these, if they continue to do so in those applications where there might be a replacement or retrofit where you can't use the newer one because there is no connection for the you know for that fourth conductor for that granite conductor that you have to use the equipment ground in this condition of replacement and retrofit it is my hope and i'm sure it is that part of that listing that they will limit it again to five of these devices on a branch or not more than 25 on a feeder as a combination uh, for the whole feeder okay so hopefully they will, will list that additional information as well as they uh, move forward Again, this does give an effective end date for new construction on January 1st, 2020. So keep that in mind. You remember when they did that for the AFCIs, the, the receptacle type? They gave you kind of a, a period to get people accustomed to this. Uh, and so they've done it here again by 2020. All right. Next change is 406.2, receptacles, cord connectors, and attachment plug caps. So what is the change here? Okay, so in order to clarify, uh, I guess through the years, people didn't really understand what an outlet box hood was. Uh, it's called by many, many names, in-use covers, bubble covers. Uh, the code made reference to it in multiple locations um, throughout the code. And so it, most notably in 314.15 and, of course, 406.9b1, it made these... These, these references to this outlet box hood, but didn't really have a definition. Now, 406.2 added a definition. Ironically enough, I'm guessing it wasn't caught the fact that it is used in more than one, so it's two locations, four, uh, 314 and 406. So it probably should reside over in 100, and I'm sure it will probably will be put in 100 and the 2020 cycle. But what it did was it added a definition to the term outlet box hood. Uh, and we, of course, through the years, this has progressed in uh, the 406.9b1 during the 2011 revision. And it still requires today that 15 to 20 amp, 125 to 250 volt receptacles installed in wet locations have enclosures that are weatherproof. Um, whether or not the attachment plug is inserted or not, typically you would use at that point um, in-use covers or bubble covers, which are actually going to try to have the term be outlet box hood for these applications. Um, and of course, now they are required also to be identified as extra duty, uh, okay? We're installed as an enclosure or, or conduit supported from grade, okay? That came in the 2011, all right? And then of course, in the 2014, uh, it, it kind of said, look, it says revision began and 15 and 20 amp, 125, 250 volt receptacles to be listed and of the extra duty type 
not just the box supported from grades. So it kind of expanded from 11 where it was just for boxes supported with grade. Now it moved into the 14 where it was in general, didn't just apply to boxes supported from grade. Okay. But during that time period, we started getting this, this def, this term outlet box hood and people started wondering what exactly was an outlet box hood. Uh, and it wasn't really defined. So it kind of was confusing for people. I, I'm a guess because people called them in use covers and I have in, in things that I've done and, and bubble covers and, and what have you. Uh, so it looked like they needed to make that change. So they added the definition and here's what the definition says. It says a housing shield intended to fit over a faceplate for flush mounted wiring devices or an integral component of an outlet box or a faceplate for flush mounted wiring devices. The hood does not serve to complete and complete the electrical enclosure. It reduces the risk of water coming in contact with the electrical components within the hood, such as attachment plugs, uh, current taps, surge protective devices, direct plug-in transformers units, or wiring devices, okay? So it adds that protection to that environment. So if you're familiar with this area of the code, then really all we're doing here is bringing you a definition, which probably should be in 100, but I'm sure it will be. If I hedge my bets on it, it will be done that way, okay? Next, 406.3E, controlling receptacles, the marking for a receptacle that is actually controlled. This is a revision, okay? And receptacles that are controlled by an automatic control device must be permanently marked with the symbol shown in figure 406.3E. So we have a figure that's going to actually be in there. And it must have the words controlled printed on it as well, on the receptacle. All right. Uh, It's important to remember that this change also tells us that the required markings must be on the receptacle face, not on the actual cover plate. And it must be visible after installation, okay? So it has to be visible after installation. So that was your change there, and you do have a a new symbol that that gives you that allowance. All right, let's go on to the next one here. Let's see here. All right, the next change we're going to talk about is 406.3F, receptacles rating and type. Okay, now this is a new change in the code. It's a new requirements were added for receptacle outlets with a USB charger incorporated into it. I'm sure we've all seen these at the, at the big box stores, the big blue and big orange. Uh, pretty neat deal if you have them on the counter. It can integrate it into it. Pretty neat. But we do have some guidance on that now. In the 2014, there no provision really existed for providing this receptacle, which had normal power and incorporated with some class two equipment uh, and connected to anything that might qualify as a class two circuitry as an integral part of that receptacle. There was really no guidance on that. So in 2017, it says in the code under 406.3F, it says receptacles with USB charger, a 125 volt, 15, 20 ampere or 20 ampere receptacle that additionally provides class two power shall be listed 
and constructed such that the class two circuitry is integral with the receptacle. Again, that's gonna be taken care of by the manufacturers. There are quite a few of these are out on the market now. I do not have one, but I think I might get one because man, I never can seem to find my little charging blocks and this seems like a great idea. So anyway, it's in the code now, you can buy them. Uh, it is in under the 2017. Again, there was no provision in 14, so yeah, I remember seeing them out on the market but the code wouldn't have permitted you to be able to install them, okay? Let's move on to the next change that we're in. The next change is in 406.4D4, exception number one and exception number two. Again, this is the replacement receptacles for AFCIs, okay? So what are the changes here? Okay, in 406.4D4, exception number one and in number two, there were some changes. There was two new exceptions uh, that were added for the AFCI requirements for replacement of existing receptacles. First of all, the clarification was made that it's not talking about the branch circuit in this application. We're talking about the replacement of the receptacle itself. So they removed the words in D4, which stated, it used to read where a receptacle outlet is supplied by a branch circuit that requires arc fault circuit interrupter protection as specified elsewhere in the code. Uh, and more, most notably, it was talking about areas um, where in 210. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. That 12A that it was required and B whatnot. Uh, a replacement receptacle of that outlet shall be one of the following. It removed that and just simply says where a receptacle outlet is located in any areas uh, specified in 210.12a or b. So it's talking about the receptacle, not the branch circuit. So this goes a long way between, in the old language, if I had a receptacle, uh, let's say that I was, that it was in a location that required AFCI and it was a replacement, and I went to replace it, because it was the brand circuit, many people would think that all the receptacles downstream, for example, would have to be replaced if it was in an area that wasn't part of 210.12a or b, right? Uh, and this is making it clear that it only applies to the receptacle that's in that specific area, okay? Not just because that circuit might have other receptacles on it that are not in areas that are required to have AFCI protection. So that was kind of clarified a little bit. The next thing that was added was exception number one and exception number two. Yeah, exception number one, again, we're dealing with receptacles, uh, says arc fault circuit interrupt protection shall not be required where all of the following apply. Now, the first one is a replacement complies 
uh, with 406.4D2B. Uh, and if you go back and look at that, that is areas where you're replacing it uh, and it's a non-grounded type receptacle or no equipment ground is present and you have the allowances to use a, a GFCI device to do this. Um, at one point, we didn't have AFCIs and GFCIs dual function devices. Again, remember, they're not combination, they're dual function. Uh, so this was the, the, the dilemma here. So um, they're not required if the replacement complies with 406.4D2B. Uh, next one, it says they're not required if it's impracticable to provide an equipment grounded conductor as provided in 250.130C. So where it was determined that it was too much trouble to in order to uh, to get that equipment grounded conductor there, or it was impracticable to do so under the specific allowances of 250.130C, which allows you to run an individual equipment grounded conductor to certain locations when you're doing replacements, for example and you provide that equipment grounding connector there. So look, if it's impractical to do that, then no, not required at that receptacle location either. Uh, the next one, it says, uh, not required where all the following, a listed combination type arc fault circuit interrupter branch circuit is not commercially available. So an older existing installation where they really don't have a combination type AFCI, and understand, again, when we talk combination ASCI, we're talking about a combination device that can detect both parallel arcs and series arcs. Don't confuse combination with a dual function. Totally different application, all right? So where it doesn't exist, then I don't have to, you know, to do so, okay? I don't have to protect that receptacle at that location for replacement. And then the last one, it says AFCI, GSCI, dual function receptacles are not commercially available. Okay, well, they are commercially available now, okay? So that is an option to be able to put the GFCI and ASCI dual function receptacle in that location. Uh, but if they weren't commercially available, then you don't have to do that, okay? And that is, again, this one is totally dealing with replacement of receptacles in areas that would have required AFCI protection. We're not dealing with the branch circuit at this point. We're dealing with how we address the replacement receptacle. So that's what we're dealing with on 406.4D4 is the receptacle replacement, okay? Now, exception number two, which says, uh, was added, says that section 210.12B, the exceptions shall not apply to receptacle, uh, to replacement of receptacles, okay? So that was added in there and a note to remind you that the language it says it becomes effective January 1st, 2014, that is already passed. So that was actually removed as well, okay? And so a synopsis of these changes really was that the first exception uh, recognizes applications where an existing two-wire receptacle is replaced and no equipment grounding conductor can be installed. It's just impractical to do so, and you can't do it. The second exception stipulates that the exception to 210.12b does not apply when we're replacing existing receptacles. So it does not apply, okay? Most notably is the exception dealing with the six-foot allowance. There was a lot of confusion when it's dealing with that six-foot allowance, okay? Uh, the exception to 210.12b permits existing branch circuit conductors to be 
modified or extended up to six feet without AFCI protection where no additional outlets or devices are installed. Now, in liberal interpretation that people would use, and some installers would say, well, look, uh, it claimed that the exception to 210.12b to mean that if one were to simply extend the conductors to an existing receptacle outlet box, which is less than six feet, that AFCI protection could be eliminated in that particular receptacle outlet. And again, adding this new exception to 406.4d4 should make it exceedingly evident or very clear that that interpretation is incorrect, okay? All right, let's move on to the the next one. The next one is 406.4d5. Again, this also deals with replacement, uh, receptacle replacement dealing with tamper-resistant receptacles. Now, uh, this is a revision to 406.4d5 dealing with tamper-resistant receptacles. I hear people call them tamper-proof all the time, but it's not. Tamper-resistant receptacles. Basically, tamper-resistant receptacles are required for replacement receptacles except where a non-grounded receptacle is replaced with another non-grounded receptacle. Okay? Now... The language it says itself, and I'm going to read it. It's uh, five uh, D5, uh, 406.4 D5. Here's what the language says in its entirety. It says, listed tamper-resistant receptacles shall be provided where replacements are made at receptacle outlets that are required to be tamper-resistant elsewhere in the code. So where they tell you that they have to be tamper-resistant. It says, except where a non-grounded receptacle is replaced with another non-grounded receptacle. Okay. So if I'm replacing a like-for-like like, non-grounded receptacle, then they don't have to be tamper-resistant. If I'm replacing it with a three-prong and provided I'm going to offer some protection by GFCI or, or, or some of the allowances to do so uh, in 406.4D1-6 through 6 for replacements, uh, if that's the case, then it has to be tamper-resistant. If it is a non-grounded receptacle, is replaced with another non-grounded receptacle, then it does not have to be tamper resistance. Okay. The next one we're going to look at is 406.6D, receptacle face plates, cover plates with integral night light or USB charger. Okay, so this is a cover plate that either has the night light application on it or an integral USB cover actually integrated into the faceplate. I don't think I've ever seen any, but that's a new requirement. I guess they're out there, so they uh, lobbied to get them into the code. And uh, new requirements were added for receptacle faceplates with integral night lights and or USB chargers. So the way it reads is, D now that was added in the course. This was 406.6D. It says replace uh, receptacle faceplates, cover plates with integral night light and or USB charger. It says a flush device cover plate with additionally pro- uh, that additionally provides a night light or and or class two output connectors shall be listed and constructed such that the night light or or and or the class two circuitry is integral with the flush device cover plate. Okay. Again, like the previous one there was dealing with the uh, USB in the receptacle. There was really no provision for this uh, previously in the 2014. So although they were on the market, they weren't 
uh, listed for the application. There was nothing really available. In the 2017, this new requirement will allow the use of these products. Okay, and they seem like they're pretty neat products. Next, 406.9B1, we're dealing now with the provision for that extra duty outlet box hood. It's a good thing now we know what an outlet box hood is because as we said, we have a definition for it. Uh, so we now know what that is. Now, the code says an outlet box hood installed at an enclosure for 15 and 20 amp years, 125 to 200 uh, and 250 volt receptacles in a wet location to provide weatherproof uh, protection, whether or not an attachment plug is inserted or not must be, or, or uh, is inserted or not, must be listed and identified as extra duty. Okay. Now the change here is it's a revision. A new provision follows or is allowed. It says other listed products, enclosures or assemblies providing weatherproof protection. Uh, that do not utilize an outlet box hood need to be marked extra duty as required for the outlet box hood. So if you have an alternate means to do this, um, other listed products that do this, um, if the outlet box hood has to be marked heavy duty, um, um, extra duty, not heavy duty, extra duty, then those also have to be marked. And that's what was added to 406.9B1, okay? Again, we're also dealing with the, the ironic nature of the fact that this seems to say receptacles of 15 and 20 amp years, 120 and 250. Um, I guess I'm wondering why might it not say 125 through? Uh, I guess the reason is it doesn't need to because that's voltage. And here we're talking about a rating. So 125 and 250 is the rating, NEMA rating for the device. So I figured I'd throw that out there. Uh, I, I would, you know, a lot of people would ask me about that. Uh, and just a reminder when you're dealing with the code, if you see something that says 120 through something that's generally dealing with the brand circuit or that application, when you see something that's 125 to 50, we're talking about a rating of the actual device, in this case, a receptacle. It's a NEMA rating uh, in its application. NEMA has a bunch of different ratings for their different types of plug caps and cores and, and receptacles and all this kind of thing. And so this is because you see the 125 and 250 is actually dealing with the rating of the actual receptacle itself. Okay, it has nothing to do with the circuit. Just thought I'd throw that in there. All right, and let's see. Now we'll leave it at that uh, and, and move on to the next change. And that just gives you a provision now if you want to use something other than... Uh, the use of a um, outlet box hood. Okay, so if there's something else on the market, then, you know, there you go. You have an allowance for that. It's just got to be marked extra duty. All right, next is 406.12, tamper-resistant receptacles. The change here is just a revision and some new language that was added. Uh, required for tamper-resistant receptacles, where it was expanded to mobile homes, to preschools and elementary education facilities, as well as other locations where small children are likely to uh, congregate. Now, the TR receptacle uh, was also expanded to 250-volt receptacle as well as the 
traditional 125 volt receptacles. So that was your significant change. So it added some locations. Dormitories was also added. Uh, but when we talk about areas of assembly, like in 518.2, which was also added, um, that is a place where people congregate or children congregate, gymnasiums, skating rinks, auditoriums, uh, transportation, waiting areas, all those type of things uh, expanded the requirement for tamper-resistant receptacles. So if you're installing any of those areas, um, you have four new items to be aware of and the fact that it now encompasses 250-volt non-locking tight receptacles. Um, you need to look at 406.12 because you can get some more information there. There was an informational note that was added to kind of give you that guidance of kind of what I alluded to earlier. It says this requirement would include receptacles identified as 5-15, 5-20, 6-15, and 6-20. Those are 15 and 20 amp configurations of an ANSI NEMA WD6 wiring device document, which you can get from NEMA. It's titled WD6, and it was revised in 2016. All right, let's move on to the next one. The next we're going to deal with 406.15. There was a deletion in here. So 406.15 has been removed. Basically, this dealt with dimming control receptacle provisions uh, have been removed. Okay. So in the 2014, the new section was added, 406.15, and it actually permits specific receptacles to be controlled by a dimmer under special specific conditions okay uh, a receptacle supplying lighting loads can be connected to a dimmer if the plug or receptacle uh, combination is a non-standard configuration type and it really uh, people struggle with what this was um, in the 2017 the requirements for dimmer control receptacles has been deleted uh, this section sought to correct uh, incompatibilities is what is stated between certain types of dimmers and certain cord and plug connected loads. Um, so it was actually... Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. They removed in the 2017. Four hundred eight point three a two barriers at service panel boards. Okay, this is going to be a significant change uh, for many people to understand how this is how this is going to apply. All right. Now, this is for added safety. Now, I'll tell you, this is already being done in Canada, 
quite a bit. So down here, you have all those lugs that are exposed where the power comes in for service equipment. So if we read the code, the change here was really a revision and some new information. It says new requirements were added for barriers to be placed in all service panel boards so that no uninsulated, ungrounded service bus bars or service terminals will be exposed to inadvertent contact by persons. Okay. So it added it into 408.3A2, uh, which says barriers shall be placed on all service panel boards, switchboards, comma, and switchgears such that no uninsulated, uh, ungrounded service bus bars and, and service terminals is exposed to inadvertent contact. So it added. Now there is an exception. The exception did say this requirement shall not apply to service panel boards with provisions for more than one service disconnect within a single enclosure as permitted in 408.36 exceptions number one, two, and three. Okay. So, okay. so this really was kind of hard, kind of a hurdle to come over here because this can be easily achieved when I have a panel, let's say, that only has one breaker, a main breaker, and you have the one bus and it's really easy to achieve that. But the reason for the exception is under 48.36, the exceptions, um, it allows for uh, a single service disconnect, but it's less practical when you have multiple service disconnects or the six disconnect rules uh, that follows under 230.71, or we have a panel with other multiple overcurrent protective devices in there that's afforded to you by the exceptions in 408.36. So it made it real difficult. Uh, it also made it real difficult for the older type of uh, split bus panel boards, uh, which could be present in you know, an existing application. So this new exception clarifies that uh, in that in that situation where you have multiple disconnected means within a single enclosure, uh, that you know it's you're not going to have to apply this. Okay. So this is real easy to apply it in where you have one service disconnect, okay, one main service disconnect. But again, less practical when you're dealing with multiple service disconnects within the same enclosure. All right. All right. So I guess I should translate that into all of your panel boards that have your main lugs, but then they have normal receptacle, uh, normal um, breakers in them that aren't service disconnections means those are, you're going to see that there's going to be this, this protection on these lugs at the top, these uninsulated live parts. Uh, that's what you're going to see. Uh, the exceptions to 48.36 allows for the six disconnect rule that we find in 230.71, which incidentally doesn't exist in Canada. Uh, they don't really have a six disconnect rule in Canada. Plus they allow panels to be mounted horizontally instead of vertically. Uh, because they don't have a six disconnect rule. So they actually protect their main lugs on their main breaker. However, our exceptions in 48.36 allow us to have multiple main breakers uh, in its application. So we have some allowances that's going to make that impractical. But under normal conditions, a normal 200 amp panel, let's say with a main breaker at the top, you're going to start to see protection over those live parts at the top. Now they're going to be removable because you got to be able to get in and out of them for qualified people to do servicing or, or, or installations. Uh, but this was very similar to what was already required uh, for switchboards um, applications. Okay, so that that was already really for switchboards and switchgear. This is already in place. Okay, um, and so 
they looked at it, the STP that looks at UL67, it increased safety of these live parts, recognized that when you're using the exceptions under 408.36, maybe some old existing split bus stuff, uh, or something that's constructed under the six disconnect rule, that you don't have to, it'd be impractical to actually cover all of those potential connections. I mean, because there are breakers that are going to have live ends on them. But most panels you're going to start to see when the 2017 code is adopted, which a company like Schneider already produced for the Canada market, is you'll see protective covering on the main lugs to the main breaker, okay, main service disconnect. And that is okay, and that is going to be required. Uh, and the exception, again, is just there for when you have the six disconnect rule and what have you like that. It's really impractical to do it that way. So it gives you some leeway on that. But most of your main panels that you're going to get are probably going to come with that protective barrier over the uh, supply or the line side terminals that supply power to that main disconnect. That's what you're going you're gonna to end up seeing because they are exposed when you're working in it. And that, to be honest with you, the home inspection industry... Uh, that's going to be pretty a pretty cool application. Now, I'm not sure what's going to happen to the bus bar underneath. The breakers are missing. It's still going to be kind of exposed, I reckon. Uh, and they're going to be uninsulated uh, in the panel board portion of that. Okay. But anyway, we'll see how that sh- uh, works out. But that was the change that took place. You're going to start seeing those protectors on those line side, those barriers, if you will, on those line side terminations. Again, you have some leeway if your your panel is in conformance with 408.36 exceptions one, two, or three, but the general rule, you're gonna start seeing it. And again, Canada, they, they don't have those rules and, and they don't have the the 240.81, whereas the, the indicating where the circuit breaker is on in the up position, they don't deal with that in Canada. They don't have the six disconnect rule in Canada, okay? So anyway, all right, we're going to go on to the next uh, change, and that is 409.22b, which is short circuit current ratings, okay? And this is dealing with industrial control panels because we are in Article 409, okay? There's been a revision here. There's some new material and a revision. Uh, The new requirements here were added for documentation of available short circuit current at industrial control panels. So now you're going to need to provide this documentation and the date the actual short circuit current calculation was performed. Okay. So that's going to be required for documentation. The actual code language says this. If an industrial control panel is required to be marked with a short circuit current rating in accordance with 409.1104, the available short circuit current at that industrial control panel and the date that that short circuit current calculation was performed shall be documented and made available to those authorized to inspect the installation. Okay. All right. So that is going to be a a new requirement for that documentation. The new requirement simply just requires that the the required documentation of this short circuit current calculation that was performed to be available for those that need to, like the EHJ, who need to be able to see it and verify that it was done so that it makes sure that it meets the SCCR rating or the, the, uh, the short circuit current rating of the actual 
uh, equipment itself. Okay, so all of that, if they want it, they have to have that documentation. It needs to be made available to the AHJ. Next is 410.62C1, cord-connected lamp holders and luminaires. Uh, there's been a revision here. The reorganization occurred. Uh, the requirements for cord-connected lamp holders and luminaires of electric discharge and LED types. Okay. This is really more a reorganization to kind of make it easier to understand when you're dealing with this uh, uh, electric discharge and LED luminaires. Uh, kind of gives you some guidance for these cord connected uh, items. So it has been put into a format that is easier to understand. It reorganized it um, and brings clarity. Okay. So that's what really took place in. Uh, 410.62C1. Just clarification and reorganization. The next we'll deal with is Article 411, low voltage lighting. We have a revision here. Again, we have some reorganizations and renaming. So it seems like this code making panel wanted to try to reorganize things into an easier to understand format, be a little more in accordance with the NEC style manual uh, and how they put things in and how they organize it and how they lay it out. Um, and uh, so it has all been reorganized. <coughs> there was no real technical change here, just kind of reorganizing things out the same as it was in uh, the previous one, which is um, 41062C1. Uh, just kind of laying it out in, in the reorganization. Uh, they changed the title, says Article 411 Low Voltage Lighting. Um, and that's just what they left it at, okay? And I guess, uh, the, well, let's look at the kind of the, the, the difference between 14. I guess there was some changes between the 14 and 17. Now, 14 applied to lighting systems operating at 30 volts or less. And, of course, it had to do with their associated components as well. And this article also covered lighting equipment connected to a Class II power source, now, these class two power sources were basically limited to low voltage power supplies. And we talked about those in chapter nine, table 11A and table 11D. The 2017 change in that was the limitations that were imposed on 411.13A and B for low voltage lighting operations at 30 volts or less. Uh, and... Uh, and the conformance with chapter nine, table 11A and table 11B... Uh, was removed from the 2017 NEC. Hmm. Okay, so these li these low voltage lighting systems addressed by Article 411 are now limited by the maximum rating of 25 amperes for the output circuits of the power supply under all load conditions. Okay, so what we've done here is back in 1996, they added this low voltage lighting systems uh, and it operated at a maximum of 30 volts. Uh, the low voltage lighting wiring are required to be listed at a maximum voltage of 30 volts, 42.4 volts peak. Um, all that change, it seems like, let's see, let's see if we can get the, the crux of the change. All right, so it kind of simplified it here. It seems like the scope under 411.1 .1 
says this article covers lighting systems and their associated components operating at no more than 30 volts AC or 60 volts DC. That's the general requirement. And it says where wet contact is likely to occur, the limits are 15 volts AC or 30 volts DC. Okay. Of course, there is an informational note that was added to remind you to look at 680 for applications involving immersion and what we had to deal with that. Uh, and it's basically got rid of the reference to those tables, as we said earlier, and said low voltage lighting system, low voltage lighting systems shall consist of an isolating power supply, a low voltage luminaires and associated equipment uh, that are all identified for their use. And here's the part we added. It says the output circuits of the power supply shall be rated for 25 amperes maximum under all load conditions and it removed all that other information that was involved in that. So there's some cleaning up here. I guess it did make some changes and got rid of some verbiage from the 2014. I guess most notably it got rid of the reference to tables 11A and tables 11B, okay, which was the low voltage power supply information. Yep. All right. I don't really anything else I'm going to add to that one. I can read you what I have here that's, uh, you know, involved in the changes. It says, you know, the 2017 4.11 was revised and reorganized for clarity. One of these revisions concerned the type of low voltage class 2 lighting systems conveyed in Article 4.11. Revisions in the 2014 NEC acknowledged that the provisions of Article 4.11 should apply to class two luminaires operating above 30 volts. Uh, these, uh, these 2014 EDC revisions permitted luminaires operating up to 60 volts DC to be installed without grounding per the requirements of 411.6A. This was justified because grounding connection to earth or some conductive body that extends that ground connection is not necessary and not necessary safety measured uh, is not a necessary safety measure for products operating from an isolated source and especially where voltages are within class two limits where the human body was inherently resistant to the flow of electric current. So the limitations that were found in 411.13 A and B uh, for low voltage lighting system operating at 30 volts or less and limitations to class two systems conforming to NEC table cha uh, chapter nine, table 11, a and B were removed from the 2017 NEC. All right. I am not a low voltage guy, to be honest with you. So when I work with low voltage stuff, I really do have to go to Article 411 uh, before I do anything. All right. Next, 422.2, a definition of appliances. Uh, that definition of appliances was deleted. Okay. Step into the world of power loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday 
I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChampaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay. Um, and it says previous definition of under appliances, a previous definition of vending machine has been deleted. So we're under a definition and we're talking about appliances in 422.2. They removed the term vending machine. Now the problem with that is they spent a lot of time trying to determine and define what a vending machine was because of confusion. Now they removed that definition. So now you're, I'm not sure what a vending machine is. So let's look at the difference between 14 and 17. Now under the 14, a vending machine was required to be GFCI protected by provision in 422.51. That was dealing with the vending machine application. To lend assistance with the GFCI requirements for vending machines, a definition of vending machine was added to do so. Now, vending machines are still required to be GFCI protected, but this requirement has been relocated to 422.5A5, where we now give a list of things to be uh, protected. However, it, it we don't have a definition of a vending machine anymore. But anyway, it says all appliances operating at 50 volts or more are now required to be listed. Now that you have to see 422.6, which is that listing requirement that requires them to all be listed. And determining what constitutes a vending machine, the user of the code will need to rely on the listing of the product standard for vending machines. Okay. There was a lot of work that went into adding the definition of vending machine, a lot of debate all the way back to 2005. There were no real arguments concerning the fact that the vending machine needed to have GFCI protection. I mean, it interacts with the public. The argument really considered, you know, really kind of was around what was a vending machine? You know, what qualifies as a vending machine? Do I have to, does that mean that a coin-operated ride that, that you sit on at a department store where you put money in, is that a vending machine? And what about a casino where I put money in, but I don't necessarily get anything out because I never win on a slot machine. Is that technically a vending machine? Or or even what is an ATM? Is that a vending machine? Okay. Basically, to help answer that question uh, about the concerns, the definition of vending machine was added in 422.51 uh, for the 2008 NEC, okay? And basically it says any self-service device that dispenses product or merchandise without the necessity of replenishment, uh, of replenishing the device between each vending operation and is designed to require insertion of a coin, paper, currency, token, card, key, or receipt of payment by other means. Uh this definition was relocated to 420.2 for the 2011, and it remained in that location for 2014. But in the 2017, this definition of vending machine was deleted along with the accompanying requirements for vending machines in 422.51. Uh, 
the question was, did the 2007 eliminate the requirement for GFCI protection? And the answer is really no. It's still under 422.5 within the list format now uh, to require it. The question is, now you revert back to what exactly is a vending machine. Okay, and I'm on this panel, and that it was determined that the definition of a vending machine was no longer necessary in the new listing requirements uh, because it's required to be listed in 422.6, and that calls for all appliances operating at 50 volts or more to be listed. So you didn't necessarily have to define a vending machine. You could just call it an appliance, and now it requires to, 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 to have GFCI protection. So I, that was the concept. So I guess if you go around that, and now that all appliances are required to be listed, I guess you get there uh, for that. Okay, and I guess that's where they... Hopefully, they, hopefully, here's the concern, is that some will argue that without the previous definition, the application of GI protection on a vending machine will be even harder for the HJ to now to decide because he might determine that it's not an appliance. Um, you know, hopefully, an HJ will make this connection will understand that it's appliance that when they see the word vending machine um, that I don't know they will consider that product standard for vending machines in the, the determination as to what a vending machine is or what it's not and apply the code appropriately all right and the standards for vending machines incidentally uh, is UL 751 uh, for vending machines. So an informational note points a user to the product standard for vending machines uh, and hopefully they'll be considered an appliance and that they're going to be protected by GFCI and, and all that good jazz. Okay. Hopefully there's no confusion. All right, 422.5 GFCI protection for appliances. Uh, totally reorganized in this application. Uh, it's new and revised GFCI requirements from 210.8. And throughout Article 422, which were spattered throughout there, uh, example was the vending machine and water, uh, drinking water coolers and what have you, have kind of been pulled back into a list format here to kind of bring it back into a format where you can, it easily can be applied. So 422.5, ground fault circuit protection uh, for personnel. That's what we're trying to deal with here. So it changed the concept here and it says there's a general A, and it says appliance identified in 422.5A1. And of course, in item five, it says vending machines. So we're kind of identifying that as an appliance. So hopefully that's going to solve that issue for people. Hopefully. Uh, and it says that 422.5A1 through 5 rated 250 volts or less and 60 amperes or less, single or three phase shall be provided with GSCI protection for personnel. And it's important to that is single or three-phase application. Multiple GSCI protection devices shall be permitted but shall not be required. So if there's one integral into the equipment, yet there's a receptacle there, it's not necessarily to have multiples, okay? All right, you, you don't have to have multiples in this application. One will suffice, okay, is what it's trying to say. But you don't need to have... Well, if I had one at the breaker panel, I don't need one at the receptacle, is what I'm saying. You don't need more than one, okay? 
Now, it says, number one, automotive vacuum machines provided for public use. So it has nothing to do with private use. These are public use applications. You've seen these big, large, at these car washes, they have these vacuum machines, big cylindrical machines, and they are open to the public to be able to use, so then it has to have GFCI protection on those. Uh, drinking water coolers, they removed the fountains, I guess, because people got it too confused with what a fountain, and people were jumping over into 680. I'm not sure why, but I, that's probably one of the reasons, I guess. Or the fact that they're actually water coolers, so they wanted to actually name it. So drinking water coolers requires the GFCI protection. Uh, High-pressure spray washing machines, cord and plug connected, are going to require GFCI protection. Um... Tire inflation machines provided for public use. You've seen these tire inflation machines at gas stations that are out for public use. Interesting enough that it only is going to apply to those that are for public use in this application, um, not the private use ones. And, of course, vending machines in general. Okay. Then you have type, you have a B, and it says type. A GFCI shall be readily accessible, listed, and located in one or more of the following locations. Now, it's basically telling you above what has to have GFCI protection. The ones below is going to integrate it and say, all right, well, here's the readily accessible, listed, and located in one or more of these locations. Okay, so you can have it in more locations. One, it says within the brand circuit overcurrent protection. So that is an option. A device or outlet within the supply circuit, so a GFCI device can meet this application. Three, it can be an integral part of the attachment plug, which is typically what we saw on vending machines where they install it within 12 inches of the end of the attachment plug as one of their options for production. That is acceptable. It says, uh, oh, well, integral part of the attachment plug. Maybe this one means it's actually in the plug. You've seen them built into the end plug, plug cap itself. Okay. So then the next one is talking about within the supply cord within 12 inches from the attachment plug. That's the one I was talking about there. So that's that one. Or factory installed within the appliance itself. So if it's actually installed within the appliance, that can suffice. So if it's built in, that will meet the requirement. Okay. All right, so that's your changes for there, kind of giving you the list, uh, list format. There was a lot of debate about the uh, dishwasher application to be added here. And so there was a lot of wrangling back and forth. It was discussed. And again, you know what? Uh, Code making panel two kept purview of it and it stayed in 210.8D. Okay, so it didn't make it here. I know there was a lot of talk about that, uh, but it, it did not take place. All right, let's move on to the next one is 422.6, which is listing required for appliances. So the new requirement here, I think you heard me talk about it when I was doing chapter three, where they added the words for listed for certain cables. Now, they did the same thing here. It's a listing requirement. It says all appliances operating at 50 volts or more shall be listed. Okay. And of course, they'll have their listing mark and they'll be listed in accordance with their standard for whatever the appliance is, and it'll have that marking on there. So that was added. Uh, there was no specific requirement for that in uh, 422 prior to this. Um, you know, so now it's actually in there. All right, let's go on to the next. 
422.14 infrared lamp industrial heating appliances. This was deleted from 422.14. It was relocated into a new article 425. Okay. So that's the change here that it was in, that it was been, uh, when you're dealing with industrial infrared lamp heating appliances that they actually got moved. And 425 is actually entitled Fixed Resistance and Electrode Industrial Process Heating Equipment. So it got encompassed into there, okay? From 422.14 into 425. The next is 422.16b2, Built-in Dishwashers. A revision here that took place. Uh, it says... The revision is the maximum length of flexible cord for built-in dishwashers increased from four feet to six and a half feet, while the receptacle outlet for a built-in dishwasher can only be located in the space adjacent to the dishwasher. So previously it was allowed to be in the space behind the dishwasher. Now it's required to be in the space adjacent to the space containing the dishwasher. So that was your change in 2017 for that application, okay? The next change we're looking at is 422.16b4, which is dealing with range hoods. You know, these are the hoods that they go over top of your range, might be a combination with a microwave, it might be a standalone range hood, uh, or what have you. The range hoods are permitted to be cord and plug connected where identified for installation uh, on installation instructions by manufacturers and it meets the following conditions. There was a revision here. The revision here was the maximum length of the flexible cord for the cord and plug connected range hood has been increased from 36 inches to 4 feet. Okay, so there was an increase in distance allowed for that application. All right. The next change was in 424 part five, which has to deal with those electric space heating cables. This was a revision part five, which is 424.34 through 424.47, uh, which is article 424 was revised for clarity uh, in its application. And basically it was kind of reorganized for clarity. Okay, now, in a 2014 Part 5 for 424 addressed electric space heating cables, okay, uh, these requirements encompassed 424.35 through 424.45. Of course, now we have two new sections that were added to Part 5, so it's expanded for 424.45 through 424.47 uh, for proper installation of these cables under the floor covering, Okay. All right, now the previous edition of the code did not properly address these items under part five, so now they are addressed here in the 2017 National Electrical Code. If you're somebody that deals with these applications uh, for fixed electric space heating equipment. Next change we're looking at is 424.45, which we previously talked about heating cables under floor covering. This is new. Again, we talked about adding these new ones here. This is a new one. This new requirement was added for the installation of heating cables installed under floor covering. 
All right, so it is totally new. We have an A, B, C, D, and an E, and an F. So the new requirements were added to 424.45 part five uh, to give some direction when you're installing these heating cables installed under floor covering. So now you have some directions now. What are we talking about? We're talking about directions when it involves the, the identification of the cables, uh, that they're suitable for this installation under this floor type of floor covering. Uh, we are talking about the expansion joints. Heating cables should not be installed where they bridge expansion joints unless provided with expansion or contraction fittings, or a contraction fittings uh, applicable to the manufacturer of the cable. Uh, means they come from, the, they're designed for the system. The connection to conductors, we're going to give you some guidance on that, saying, now, look, these heating cables should be connected to branch circuits and supply wiring by wiring methods that are described in the installation instructions that are provided with this cable and that are recognized by Chapter 3 wiring methods, in other words. So that's in two. Now, the anchoring component, the, how you position it and secure it in place under this floor covering, just going to remind you to do so by the manufacturer's instructions. Uh, before, you had always kind of had to go by the manufacturer's instructions, 1103B, because to be honest with you, how else are you going to install it? So here we're just kind of pointing you, they're pointing you to the instructions from the manufacturer. And then the last one is ground fault circuit interrupter protection. It says ground fault circuit interrupter protection for personnel shall be provided. And at the end, the last one is F, and it says uh, grounding braid or sheathing. It says grounding means such as copper braid, metal sheathing, or other approved means. Again, other approved means, but whatever the jurisdiction seems to approve, uh, shall be provided as part of the heated length. Okay? So all of these applications here uh, are going to be provided in part five when you didn't have previous guidance on this. There was no such requirement in part five for electric space heating cables. Okay. All right. So we have some more guidance there. 424.47 label provided by the manufacturer. This is a new change. Uh, this provision was added from manufacturers of electric space heating cables. Remember, we're still in 424 to provide marking labels to be affixed to the panel boards to identify which brand circuit supplies the circuits in those space heating installations. Okay, so now we have labeling that is to be provided by the manufacturer and they're gonna provide this label and you're gonna put it on the panel and you're gonna, put, you're gonna fix it on the panel board, most notably probably not on the actual panel board because that's the inner guts, probably on the, the, the cabinet enclosure all right, and it's going to identify which brand circuit supplies this space heating installation. Okay, all right. Now, if this electric space heating cable installations are visible and distinguishable after installation, the label shall not be required to be provided and affixed to the label. But if it's done in a way that it's not visible, obviously, and it's not distinguishable after the installation, uh, then the manufacturer has to provide this label for you to be able to put on the panel in order to be able to, to denote which circuit supplies it. All right, the next change we're looking at is Article 424, Part 10, Fixed Electric Space Heating Equipment. This is new. New Part 10 was added to Article 424 for low voltage fixed electric space heating equipment. So this is all new. It's giving total direction here for the low voltage fixed electric space heating equipment. Okay, so that's all new that was added 
to 424. Now, in the 2014, it really didn't address low-voltage fits electric space heating equipment in 424. So, to address the products identified as such, a new Part 10 was added to 424 for the 2017 code. So, that gives you some guidance there that was added. Under Article 425, fixed, uh, this is one we talked about earlier, this is new fixed resistant and electrode industrial process heating equipment. This is a new uh, article uh, and it is addressing fixed resistant and electrode industrial process heating equipment. And it is all new. It gives all the requirements for the brand circuit requirements, the listing requirements in 425.6, uh, working space, locations, um, all of those, the supply conductors, locations where you can have it, uh, all of this information now is giving guidance here in 425, okay? Now, in 2014, the NEC did not completely address requirements for industrial process heating equipment. So 422.14 covered some of the requirements for infrared heat lamps, but it didn't recover them all. So it got incorporated into 425, and now it's going to address things that weren't adequately addressed previously when it came to industrial process heating equipment, okay? So um, it wasn't just in infrared heat lamps, okay, which was relocated from four, uh, over to it from 422, okay? So that's the change now dealing with that. Mm -hmm. All right, the next change is 426.32, uh, impedance heating voltage Limitation fixed outdoor electric de-icing and snow melting equipment. All right, so this is a revision under 426.32 dealing with fixed outdoor electric de-icing and snow melting equipment. All right, uh, the real glance change here was the allowance for voltage outputs greater than 30 volts AC if an impedance heating system uh, for fixed outdoor electric de-icing and snow melt equipment is provided with a class A GSI protection has been deleted. Okay. So that has been deleted. So in the 2014 edition, the secondary winding of this isolated transformer that's providing the power for this is connected to an impedance heating element for fixed outdoor uh, de-icing and snow melting could not have an output voltage greater than 30 volts AC unless unless it was protected by a ground fault circuit interrupter for personnel. Now, with GFCI protection of personnel, the voltage was permitted to be greater than 30 volts, but not more than 80 volts. Now, under 2017, the secondary windings of an isolated transformer consists of an impedance heated element cannot have an output greater than 30 volts AC. So, this allowance for voltage output greater than 30 volts in a system is provi if is provided with GFCI protection, it really is not achievable, so it's been deleted at this point. So this GFCI protection option uh, was eliminated when it was greater than 30 volts of AC. The voltage limitations uh, have been uh, in the code since uh, for for many years. I guess it's since. Uh, the reorganization in, I guess, 1981, uh, I guess, uh, and the rule implemented in 1981 where the GFCI protection for personnel uh, could be in place. 
if it exceeded 30 amperes, again, totally gone now. So with that said, though, let's actually look at the code rather than just a kind of a synopsis of change. Let's look at the 426.32 in itself. Okay, if you got your, if you happen to have a 2017 uh, National Electrical Code, you'll see that it says the secondary winding of the isolation transformer connected to an impedance heating element shall uh, shall not have an output voltage greater than 30 volts AC. So where you had the allowance for it to be higher under GFCI protection, it is totally removed in the 2017 National Electrical Code. Okay. And it used to actually, it used to say where ground fault interrupter protection for personnel is provided, the voltage shall be permitted to be greater than 30, but not more than 80. That's no longer there. Okay. All right, let's move on to the next one. Uh, and I'm going to go on and go up to 430.53D4. Single motor taps on one branch circuit. Okay. So... This is where you have servo motors or loads on a single or one branch circuit. Now this is new. This new tap rule from, for single motor allows uh, 25 foot taps with the same conditions as it allowed in other areas of the NEC. Okay. So this is a new tap rule that's applying to motors. You have a single motor tap rule allowance. And it says basically the language, and I'll read you the change here is item four. It says, it says conductors from the point of the tap from the branch circuit to a listed manual motor controller additionally marked suitable for tap conductors protected in group installations. So I guess we gotta have that markings, or to a branch circuit protective device. Ah, there you go. Uh, shall be permitted to have an ampacity not less than one-third of that of the branch circuit conductor uh, to, to which that it taps, obviously. The conductor from the controller to the motor shall have an ampacity in accordance with 430.22. It says the conductors from the point of the tap to the controller shall, number one, be suitably protected from physical damage and enclosed either by an enclosed controller or by a raceway and be not more than 25 feet long, and in two, have an ampacity not less than that of the branch circuit conductors. Okay, so it's, it's you know, it can't be more than 25 feet. It has to have an ampacity that's not less than the branch circuit conductors to which that it taps. Uh, so this is similar to the 25-foot tap rule uh, that you would see elsewhere in the code uh, for other applications where tap rules apply, feeder tap, for example. All right, so here's the application that's going to be added. Uh, this new 430.53D increases the maximum length of a conductor uh, of any tap supplying a single motor to 25 feet uh, when the ampacity is not less than one third, uh, one, not less than one third of that of the branch circuit conductor. Okay. All right. Now let's see. The biggest change here is this really increasing the length of this tap ability because previously to this, it allowed it to go up to 10 feet uh, for the motor application uh, for a single motor taps for group installations. It was limited to 10 feet under 430.53 D3. Um, 
so feeder tap conductors were allowed to go to 25 feet. Uh, so, you know, and that's in 430.28.2. So it simply increased the maximum length of the conductor for many taps supplying a single motor to 25 feet. Okay. All right. And let's, and again, in looking in this one in the code, you really have to stop and look. The concept here was to allow longer lengths than the 10 foot uh, application. But you really have to look at this one and dissect it because it, it, it's kind of multiple parts here. So I want to look at it again. Now, it says the conductors from the point of the tap from the branch circuit to the listed manual motor controller additionally marked suitable for tap conductor protection in group installation or to a branch circuit device shall be permitted to have an ampacity. Okay, this is that conductor from that connection to the controller or to the uh, branch circuit. It says it shall have a, a capacity not less than one third that of the branch circuit conductor. Okay, now it goes on to say the conductors from the controller to the actual motor now shall have an ampacity in accordance with 430.22. It goes on to say, now you have to understand how these build onto each other. The next one says the conductors from the point of the tap to the controller. Okay, this is the first leg. This is the actual tap. Uh, shall one be suitably protected from physical damage and enclosed either by an enclosed controller or, or by a raceway and be no more than 25 feet long. Then it goes on to say, or it has to have an ampacity not less than that of the branch circuit conductors. Okay, so that is the, the language that's put into this, the way it's reading. I'm going to be honest with you right now. I don't like that language. Um, I don't like how it talks about three components in here that talks about the length. It's quite possible that I'm not grasping it just yet. Uh, the way I read it, it's saying that it's got to be a 25 length maximum under these conditions. But if you actually, um, when it uses the or, it says if the ampacity is not less than that of the branch circuit, then I'm not limited uh, in length. And that might be what it's trying to say when we're dealing with from the controller, uh, from the tap to the controller itself. Um, not sure I'm, I like how this one's worded, but at the end of the day, the change is just to remind you that the, the length allowances have incorporated allows you to be able to go a little farther when you're dealing with taps for single motors where there's a group of single motors and you're going to tap an individual branch circuit, okay? So that's best I'm going to give you on that one. It is such a new change that I, you know, there's somebody out there I'm sure that says, Paul, you're stupid, that this one's easy. Okay, I'm stupid. That's fine. I, I just don't know that I like how this is, how this reads. Hmm. But anyway, the, the allowance for the 25-foot tap allowance for single motor taps is uh, makes sense. Uh, because we have other tap rules that, 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 that apply that allow you to go to the 25 foot and, uh, and what have you, okay? I'll read you what the analysis of change says 
it says a, and I'll read it to you, and this is how they explain it. A new list item four was added to 430.53D for the 2017 NEC that will increase the maximum length of the conductors of any tap supply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Buying a single motor to 25 feet where the ampacity is not less than one-third of that of the branch circuit conductors. I, I, I get that. It says... This new 25-foot tap provision merges the allowances of 430.28A for feeder taps with the single motor tap provisions of 430.53D. Taps in length of up to 25 feet have been recognized, uh, have been a recognized part of the NEC for many code cycles, and I will agree there's a lot of feeder tap applications where this is, is applied, and, and it's a very common application. Um, the same 20-foot 25 foot tap allowance for single motor taps is a natural progression for the NEC. I get that. The problem is if I were to sink it down to just that, I would say, okay, the code is now allowing me a 25 foot tap rule. Uh, but when it's determined the ampacity, when I read this, it says it's got to be at least one third. That's very harmonic with, uh, or in harmony with the other 25 foot tap rules. I get it. It's that last statement that it makes in there where it goes on to say, Oh, and by the way, it shall have an ampacity not less than that of the branch circuit conductors. Um, goes a long way to tell me which conductors have to do what, but I think it could be broken down a little bit easier to understand. Uh, I just don't like the last part that says the conductors from the point of the tap to the controller. Okay, When you read earlier, it says from the controller to branch circuit device shall be permitted to have an ampacity not less than one-third of the branch circuit conductors. Okay. I don't know. Anyway, maybe a little work or clarification. If somebody will send me an email to clarify me, hey, I don't know it all, brother. I'm just telling you I don't like how that's worded. Um, when i got to think that hard about it, I, I, I just don't like it. I'm sure there's plenty of them out there who know who you are that will say something smart and say that, you know, whatever. You know what? Get a life. It is what it is. I, I just... I don't know how to apply that one that way. I know how I'm going to apply it. I'm going to make sure that the conductor has at least a third of the ampacity and it's limited to 25 feet under this application. That's what I'm going to do. All right. 430.99, available fault current for motor control centers. This is a new one. A new requirement was added for available fault, available short circuit current at the motor control center and the date the short circuit current calculation was performed. Pretty much like what we saw and industrial control panels. Same application here. Most of this equipment does have uh, short circuit current ratings on it, 
and you need to do that and you need to be able to, to show the date that it was performed and the new requirement was added for this and it has to show the date that it took place. Um, again, it's non-dwelling unit service equipment is required to have a maximum available fault current legibly marked on the field in the field uh, with the date and whatever. Uh, there was no such available fault current documentation required for motor control centers. Uh, and a lot of that equipment might have, uh, will have, short circuit current ratings. Uh, so we got to know what the fault current is and all this type of thing. So 430.99 goes a long way about the documentation and dating it and show when it was actually performed. Uh, that way, if there's any changes to the system that might affect that available uh, short circuit current or fault current, that a new calculation can be performed at that date because we actually have a date when the previous one was done, okay? Uh, and we also have to remember that we have to, inf the inspectors are, are having a hard time enforcing these short circuit current ratings that are required under 110.9 and 110.10 on things like motor control centers. We've kind of helped them out on panel boards, switchboards, and, and things like that, but they really didn't have that help or that that guidance they needed when it comes to motor control centers or industrial control panels. Uh, now they're going to have this information so they can check and make sure that the equipment is adequate for the available short circuit current, uh, available fault current. Uh, and let's see, I guess um, this documentation was added to industrial control panels, motor control centers, uh, incidentally, it was also added to 440 for air conditioning equipment. It was added to four, uh, 620 for elevator control panels. And it was also added to 670 for industrial machinery, just to kind of round it out. Uh, 440.9, grounding and bonding for rooftop equipment. This is a new addition to the code. A new requirement was added requiring a wired type equipment grounding conductor for non-threaded conduit systems on rooftops supplying such things as HVAC equipment. So you had to provide in it, let's say we had, uh, well, let's go on and let's look, uh, let's just look for the, the application so I can show you what it means. It says where multi-motors or combination load equipment is installed outdoors on a rooftop or on a roof, uh, on a roof, an equipment grounding conductor of the wire type shall be installed in outdoor portion of non-metallic raceway systems that use non-threaded fittings. In other words, it's EMT with compression fittings. Uh, then you're going to have to provide the uh, wire type equipment grounding conductor. Now, if it's all threaded type, rigid, all this kind of stuff, then you don't need to do it. Uh, but if it's going to be an EMT with compression type fittings or non-threaded type of fittings, or, or I guess it would be normal set screw, those type of things, uh, then uh, you're going to have to provide a wire type equipment grounding conductor. I'm sure that's not going to make the, the EMT people very happy. Uh, but hey, we can all get along, right? So outdoor portions, the outdoor portion, which I'm not sure how you would transition if it's coming through a building and poking out, if it's EMT, um, I guess you're going to have to put it in the whole run or at least in the junction box from the last portion that's indoors before it transitions maybe from a junction or a pull box outdoors, then you have to add it and then, you know, bond it obviously accordingly to the box inside. I guess you do that. 
application, okay? Uh, Seashell. All right, let's move on to the next change. Uh, the next change is going to be 440.65 protection devices for room AC disconnects. All right, this change here is a revision and a deletion. Uh, deleted the the reference to, um, I guess it was LCDI or AFCI. Uh, in and how it was in the actual opening statement of it, and now it's get, it presented it down into a list item, and it also added what's called HDCI, which is a heat detecting circuit interrupter. So let's look and read exactly what the code says, because in the 2014 code, single phase cord and plug connecting air conditioning units were required to be provided with a factory installed leakage current detector interrupter. It's a LCDI, LCDI or arc fault circuit interrupter AFCI protection. Now this protection is required to be located within 12 inches of the attachment plug or it can actually integrate it into the attachment plug however they want to do it. But in 2017, the addition, uh, in addition to the previously allowed protective devices, in other words, LCDI and AFCI, uh, they added the HDCI into the list. So previously LCDI and AFCI was in the actual parent language they removed that out now and added three different list items here. And they have LCDI, AFCI, and HD, HDCI into the mix. So that's what the real change was from the 14 to the 2017 edition there. Um, the HDCI technology was intended for use in dehumidifiers, room air conditioners, and other refrigeration equipment. Uh, it incorporates the functionality of leakage current detection interrupter. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, UL, the UL standard for that is UL 2872. All right. So, and it also, let's see. The requirements of HDCI protection are to be used with those in UL 1699. As requirements of modify and supplement UL 16, we won't worry about that part. Um, okay, next is 445.11 markings when we're dealing with generators. It's a revision and new information. The change nameplate marking requirements for generators have been revised and put into a list format. So rather than a you know, having it stated within the parent text, it's now bought out into a list format. Uh, it talks about all the requirements that are needed for the marking of the generator. Okay, so that's all the real change there, expanding it out. Uh, and this, again, this section involves the generator's nameplate marking was revised in that list format for stationary or portable generators now that are rated at more than 15 kW, okay? And the word impedance was replaced with the word reactance. Uh, so there you go. That's where you change. The next change we have is 445.13b, generator overcurrent protection device provided. All right, so this is new. This requirement clarifies that a feeder tap can be used 
if the generator is equipped with an overcurrent relay or other overcurrent protective device. Okay. And let's see. So it added B here, and B was added here to 445.13, which is opacity of conductors A. It says the opacity of conductors from the generator output, uh, and this is talking about where it has to be from the terminals to the first from the terminals of the generator to the first disconnection device or the first distribution device uh, containing an overcurrent device shall be not less than 115% of the nameplate rating of the generator. Uh, that didn't change. Um, they made it clear that it was the output from the generator terminals in that. But what they added was B, and here's what B says, overcurrent protective device. It says where the generator set is equipped with a listed overcurrent protective device, including or, uh, including or a combination of a current transformer or current relay, or overcurrent relay, Conductors shall be permitted to be tapped from the load side of the protected terminals in accordance with 240.21b. Okay, Tapped conductors shall not be permitted for portable generators 15kW or less where field-wired connection terminals are not accessible. Okay. All right. So the change in 2017 for the 2014, uh, everything really stayed with the 14 when it comes to the, the 115% between the generator and the first uh, service, the first distribution device, and that didn't change that much in that application. The new provision added was 445.13b to clarify that feeder tap rules under 240.21b, which we figured they were, but because it was a feeder, people would denote the fact that it was a tap and they were saying you couldn't tap a tap. All this other confusion that was involved with that it made it clear that for a 240.20b can be used if the generator or generator set is equipped with an overcurrent relay or other overcurrent device unless the tap conductors are from a portable generator rated 15kw or less where the field wiring connection terminals are not accessible and then they're not they're actually up into the actual portable device uh, the generators that are permanently mounted generators typically have access to these terminals. The generators that you buy that are portable at 15kW or less generally are not accessible, so that's not going to apply here uh, to be able to do that. It just makes sense in the transition. Uh, also, there were a lot of times where a generator was used for whether it's emergency, uh, standby, or, or, or um, legally required standby, would come off a generator who had the ability to um, dump different uh, loads, uh, be able to select it out, uh, load shedding, if you will. But they all came from one side of this actual device. So uh, this allows you to be able to, to tap from it, provided you have an overcurrent protection. Uh, it just makes sense to be able to do that application. It's kind of like what we do on the load side of a service disconnect. If we have multiple lugs and we, we can actually tap off of that, as well same kind of concept here you just want to let you know that those tap rules for feeder rules 24021b can apply okay uh, and again this closely aligns with 700.10b5a uh, which you know allows for that configuration that I just just talked about for multiple loads and multiple applications and uh, all that.
right. Alright, 445.18. Disconnecting means and shutdown of primary mover. This is a revision and some new information in here. Uh, they kind of changed the, 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 the title, or I guess so the, the main statement here in 445.18, I guess the, the charging bold print or the title, I guess you would say. For lack of a better word, I can't think of the name of that. I know somebody else out there will, but you know what I mean. It's, at, it's, it's actually at the section information. It says disconnection means and shutdown of prime mover. Uh, all that information was, was, was deleted, the general that was in the 2014, and now there's an A, a B, and a C. And basically, A is going to say if a disconnection means generator other than cord and plug connected portable, shall have one or more disconnection means. Each disconnect means shall simultaneously open all associated ungrounded conductors. Okay, so I'm required to have a disconnection means in this generator. This is one way to do it. Each disconnection means shall be lockable in the open position in accordance with 110.25, which is lockable in the open position. Okay, um, then you've got where you can meet this disconnecting means or shutdown in B, which is shutdown of the prime mover. It says generators shall have the provision to shut down the prime mover. The means to shut down uh, shall comply with all of the following. So in order for this to qualify, it says the equipment is provided with, with uh, provisions to disable all prime movers uh, start control circuits to render the prime mover incapable of starting. Okay, That's the primer, the motor that might start the primer process to get the generator started. Two, initiate a shutdown mechanism that requires a mechanical reset. It means it can't reset on its own. You have to physically reset it. Okay? It says the provisions to shut down the prime mover shall be permitted to satisfy the requirements of 445.18a, which is the disconnecting mean requirement. Where it is capable, again, this is important, where it is capable of being locked in the open position as well in accordance with 110.25. So we got to, you know, you're meeting that as well. So your prime mover shutdown also has to have those provisions to lock it in, open in accordance with 110.25. It goes on to say generators with a greater than 15 kW rating shall be provided with an additional requirement uh, to shut down the prime mover. This additional shutdown means shall be located outside of the equipment room or generator enclosure and, uh, or generator enclosure and shall also meet the requirements of 445.18b1 and b2, okay? And then it goes on for C, it says generators installed in parallel. It says where a generator is installed in parallel with other generators, so yes, it can be installed in parallel, the provisions of 445.18a shall be capable of isolating the generator output termina uh, terminals from the paralleling equipment, okay? So, I have to make sure that whatever I do in 445.18a allows me to isolate the output terminals from the other parallel equipment. This disconnect means shall not be required to be locked, uh, located at the generator, okay? All right, and let's see. So all, basically, all of the revisions for 445.18a for disconnection means exist. They remain. They really they remain. 
The real revision here is adding the ability to use the prime mover shutdown to meet the disconnect uh, application. And of course, 445.18c was added to clarify that really, I mean, look, when a generator is installed in parallel, it's not necessarily to provide disconnect means for each generator in the parallel equipment. As long as a generator is capable of being isolated in the generator output terminals from the parallel equipment. So as long as it can be isolated, you don't have to have a disconnect for every one if you're running a parallel application, okay? They just have to be disconnected and isolated. All right, next one is 445.20, ground fault circuit interrupter protection for receptacles on 15KW or smaller portable generators. Okay, so these are the 15KW and smaller portable stuff. Uh, in my world, a 15KW is not all that small of a generator, to be honest with you. But 15KW. Now, this is a revision and it's new information. We're dealing with these 15KW or smaller portable generators. Now, listed cord set incorporating GFCI protection for portable generator manufacturers or rebuilt prior to January 1st of 2015 are now permitted. Uh, GFCI requirements have been separated into unbonded, that is a floating neutral type generator, versus bonded neutral generator. So now it is broken down into two applications, A for an unbonded or a floating type of a generator, and then of course we have the bonded neutral. One is connected to the frame, one is not connected to the frame. Okay, so you, you have some allowances here for this. Um, they did add exception A to A and B. Again, if the generator was manufactured or remanufactures prior to January 1st, 2015. Uh, listed court sets or devices incorporating listed GFCI protection for personnel identified shall be permitted. So you really can't change those generators at that point, change any of the receptacles or the application of GFCI protection uh, because it was prior to January 1st, a compromise was made. Uh, and at that point, as long as you use it in the cord set, you're fine. It's not incorporated into the actual device. So 2017, 445.20 was revised to separate the GFCI requirements when dealing with an unbonded or floating neutral generator and a bonded generator, okay? So we have those two, two different aspects, okay? So it was broken down to apply how the, how the GFCI is to be applied. And the exception was given to say, look, I'm not expecting you to do anything to this generator if it's prior to 2005, January 1st. But you can use a cord uh, with, it, with it integrated into the cord for this application. Uh, then, you know, if it's a cord set or device incorporating a listed GSI protection, then you're okay. Uh, that shall be permitted in these size generators. Okay. So I just gave you some more. I don't want to go in so much detail on that, but it did break it up into the two requirements. I encourage you to go look those up and see the differences. I will tell you briefly that in a floating or an unbonded generator, uh, both 125 volt and the 125, 250 volt receptacle outlets uh, shall have listed GSEI protection for personnel integrated or integral to the generator or receptacle on all 125 volt and 15 and 20 amp receptacle outlets, okay? All right, so unbonded generators with both when they have the availability for a 125 volt receptacles and they had the availability for 250 volt receptacle outlets has to have a listed GFCI protection 
that is integral to the generator or receptacle when it comes to all of the 15 and 20 amp 125 volt receptacles. We're not talking about the 250 one, but if it does contain both of them on there, then you have to have integral GFCI protection on these 125 volt receptacles for 15 and 20 amp use, okay? Outlets, that is required in that right there. The exception to that rule, there is an exception. It says, look, again, if GFCI protection shall not be required, where, all right, this is important, remember this one, GFCI protection shall not be required where the 125 volt receptacle outlets are interlocked such that it is not available for use when any of the 125, 250 volt receptacle outlets that are in use. So I don't have to have it on the GFCI if there is an interlock that says when I'm using one that I can't use the, uh, the 125 volt receptacle outlet, okay? So it's not available when I'm using the 125, 200, uh, the, the uh, 250 volt rated receptacle, okay? That is for the unbonded. Okay, it's not bonded anything. It's a floating neutral application. Now, when I'm dealing with the bonded neutral type, which I will argue to say is probably most of them uh, <coughs> today. No, nah, I probably shouldn't say that because somebody will say I'm wrong. Um, bonded neutral conductor. It says bonded generators shall be provided with GFCI protection on all 15, uh, all 125 volt, 15 and 20 ampere receptacle outlets. Period. It only applies to the to all. Uh, it, it has to be no matter what else is there, whether it's integrated, interlocked. It doesn't matter. All of the 15, 20 amp, 125 volts have to have GFCI protection. Okay, uh, and it goes on to give you an informational note that refers you to 590.6, which is temporary power applications, and the note about GFCI requirements for that. And then, of course, it does give you the exception to A and B, which says, look, if the generator was manufactured before January 1st, 2015, then you can use listed cord sets or devices that incorporate listed GFCI protection for that protection. You can do that. Okay. So that's your, your general changes there. Um, uh, basically, a summary of this, because this is a big one for people. Uh, those unbonded floated neutral generators require GF protection on all 125 volt, 15 and 20 ampere receptacles, but only when both the 15, 125 uh, volt and the 125, 250 volt receptacle exist on the generator. Okay, so I just want to make that clarity to that. Only when they exist. Now, an exception, again, in 445.20a eliminates GFCI protection for uh, the exception eliminated that, that protection for the 125 volt receptacle outlets if there's an interlock that makes it unavailable when the 125, 250 volt receptacle is actually in use. Okay, so there's some relaxation there for that. All right, and then you know the other one is fairly easy for that application. All right, hopefully we clarified that one change. Next, 480.3 equipment, when we're dealing with storage batteries, this is something new. Uh, storage batteries and battery management equipment are now required to be listed uh, other than less lead acid batteries, okay? So here's what it says in the code. It says storage batteries and battery management equipment shall be listed. This requirement shall not apply to lead acid batteries which typically operate at 48 volts or less systems. Uh, some of these lithium ions and, and what have you batteries and some of the new battery technologies, uh, 
I have a much, 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 much higher uh, level of, of, of voltage that's a, that applies to them, like lithium ion. Um, I think I just said, I already said lithium ion, but you get the point, all right? So, doesn't apply to, you know, we got this new chemistries and technologies and batteries are getting better all the time. Uh, we have no idea what the potential hazards are involved in those locations. Uh, and we need all this stuff to be listed for its application. Again, we pretty have, we pretty much have a good history on lead acid and its limitations. So not really an issue there, but, and we already have safe installation practices and in, in, for these traditional batteries for lead acid or, or lead, uh, uh, calcium batteries. We, we already have adequate information to address those. And that's all the way back in 480. I mean, that, that's, we already have that here in 480. But you have these new emerging chemicals, these new emerging technologies, again, lithium ions that, you know, we don't need to even talk about the hoverboard incidents that are going around the country with them things blowing up. It's still an emerging technology. The, the, the need for energy in these storage systems, and you see significant expansion in storage uh, uh, systems here in the 2017 code, a couple of new articles that are involved in those type of things that we need to make sure that all of these components that are, are actually listed for the application, okay? So that was the change, and you'll notice that it says, um, for the equipment, it just says that, uh, it's funny, I wonder why we didn't put a listed dot six in here. Or maybe it is, let me look. 480, let's look real quick. Let me go, since we're doing it, let me look, get the code. Uh, 480.3, it's new. It says storage batteries and battery management equipment shall be listed. Okay, so that's under dot three for the equipment. So all of that equipment, again, doesn't apply to lead acid. Um, I guess they didn't know. They already have a dot six, and that's talking about overcurrent protection for prime movers. So I guess they couldn't put it there. Anyway, that's your more significant change to 480. Um, there was some other changes in here. Uh, but I'm not going to be able to cover every single one of them. So we are not going to cover every single one of them. All right. Well, that's it for the changes to the 2017 code when it comes to Chapter 4. Hopefully, I've covered each one of them. If I didn't do it adequately enough, I apologize. There are plenty of other options out there to get your continuing education or to learn about the changes. This is my first glance at them. So... Um, I'm sure this that in future episodes, I will expand in even more detail probably. Uh, but hopefully you got something out of it to kind of give you a, a, a good understanding of what we're dealing with. This was a rather long one. This was two hours. Uh, so you know, hopefully you hung in there. Uh, again, visit our website at the Electrical Code Academy, uh, www.electricalcodeacademy.com.net or .org, masterthenec.com.net or .org. Visit our websites and click on the link to the message board. Post your questions. Join our message board. Visit us on Twitter at MasterTheNEC. Visit our Facebook page by going to the link on our website or by going on Facebook and searching for MasterTheNEC. Uh, hopefully you've enjoyed this podcast. Remember, we also have videos that are available on our YouTube channel. You can get to all that from our websites. Uh, again, if you want to email us with questions or clarification on any of these code changes that we talked about. I'm more than happy to give additional clarification. 
Uh, if I were to go in depth on every change and not kind of brush the surface, this would be like eight hour uh, podcasts. And I, I really can't do that. So hopefully I didn't cover every aspect and I kind of gave you the surface and didn't make it too confusing for you. If you have any additional questions, email us at info at masterthenec.com or info at electricalcodeacademy.com and I'll be happy to answer those questions. Thanks again. God bless. Until next time. Peace. Thank you.